Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, good morning. It's uh, Sunday morning. Yeah, that's right. It's Sunday morning. I'm going to try to get the bio off early this week. Um, This is being, I'm going to be doing another one from the Genozim catalog over here. They're having their auction, um, I guess this Tuesday, I think, yeah, Tuesday, 28th of December, okay? And uh, that's what I mentioned the other day. This is the uh, big auction house with this, all the old rare swarm. Genazim is spelled G-E-N-A-Z-Y-M, not Z-I-M, but G-E-N-A-Z-Y-M. And so this is Stefanski's, and they're sponsoring this. And I was looking through the catalog, and I see one. Uh, which was of interest to me, the second kuzari, which is item number uh, 211. Uh, they're also selling an old kuzari, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something else that you probably never heard of, which is kuzari number two, or part two. And here we deal with a, a very interesting person from the early modern period, David Nieto, David Nieto, um, who was the rabbi of the Spanish-Portuguese show in London, the Bevis Mark show, maybe was like among their first. I mean, when, like when the show was built, and the show's still there. I think you know that, many of you know that. If you've ever been in London, I was there once, I visited it, it's one of the oldest shows. Until the corona, they used to boast that they have a million every single day, even during the Blitz. But because of the corona, last year, when all the shows closed, remember that? All the shows closed, like in Baltimore and around the world, so then they didn't. <clears throat> but still, that means from the year 1701 till I don't know what, till 2021, you know, 2020, it was a million all the time. So, uh, that's what I want to talk about today. A very unusual person. All the people we talk about are unique in their own way, obviously. And for some reason, when I saw this in the catalog over here, it caught my eye. Uh, and I was thinking about him over the weekend. So again, the, day, the name is David Nieto. This is a Sephardi. When I say Sephardi, I'm talking about the Spanish-Portuguese. You will perhaps recall, as I've said many times before, that after 1492, what happened was that the... <coughs> Uh, choice was given to the Jews in Spain in 1492. Um, if you want to stay, you have to convert to Christian, or you can leave. Those who left went eastward for the most part in 1492, and across the Mediterranean, most of them went to the Turkish Empire in the Middle East. Some went to Italy, and that's what happened to them. Those are what they call Sephardim Tahorim. They're Tahor because, in other words, they never uh, became Christians. Uh, however, on the other hand, there were those who elected to remain behind, um, the great majority of whom Taka became Goyim, you know, as they reconciled with their new situation, they're lost to the Jewish people. A few were Muranos, as we call them today. That might not be the right word. I don't want to hazard this all over again, but I think you know that. So from the ranks of these Muranos, and really from the few that ran away to Portugal, because Portugal promised them that they could stay Jewish, and then the Portuguese government turned on a dime in 1497, five years after 1492, and said, all of a sudden, you have to become Catholics, and they didn't want to do it, and they forced them, you know, Mamish literally physically forced. Mostly from those ranks came what we would call today the Portuguese Jews, which means the Jews from Spain, who left in 1492, but didn't go east towards the that part of the Mediterranean, but on the contrary, went west to Portugal, 
And by the time the Parsha is over, and we've visited many times, it is from these ranks that will come the Anusim, the Conversos, the New Christians, as they were called, or the Muranos. And uh, these are the ones who either were caught by the Inquisition or were burned at the stake, or got the heck out of there over the next 300 years whenever they could. You know, right? And very few of them still remain behind down to modern times. That's another pressure by itself. They recently made a movie, I couldn't believe it, of uh, Baros Bastos, Arthur, Arthur Baros Bastos, who was a Portuguese guy who was Macara, those guys, but in the 20th century. But I'm talking about a story that takes place in the 16 and 1700s, and at that time, Umamish had this constant trickle uh, out from Portugal and Spain, because some of these Portuguese Jews that I just described, who are really not Portuguese Jews, they're really Spanish Jews who spent some time in Portugal, they came back into Spain also for various reasons, and that's why we, you and I refer to them as the Spanish Portuguese. So they are Sephardim, but they're very different type, because they were all raised Daesh. Um, some were told at different ages by their parents, whoever, you really Jewish, don't tell anybody. Um, usually, you know, you wait till at, at least Bar Mitzvah. It was up to me, I'd wait till 20 years old. But no, maybe it's not a good idea to wait till you're 20 years old, because maybe at that time, you're too forgotten. You see the dilemmas that the parents had at that time, like, you don't want the kids to know too much. On the other hand, you, you want them to know enough not to absorb all the Catholic stuff that they're getting in school. So it was a very tricky existence. Um, <clears throat> and if some relative was arrested, maybe everybody will get arrested, they all get killed. So it was a very uh, uh, scary existence. And therefore, all during the 1500s, and all during the 1600s, and all during the 1700s, little by little, people were always escaping or leaving under one pretense or another, getting out on a ship, or crossing the border uh, into uh, uh, France, or something like that, when they could. Some got caught and were killed. So I'm ta- obviously, I'm talking about the ones that didn't get caught. Otherwise, there'd be nothing to talk about. In the 1600s, and our hero was born in 1654. In the 1600s, that's when you started to see um, the refugees, the, the Spanish-Portuguese Jews, who escaped come together in a few places to actually make a Jewish kehillah above board open before Hesia. What I mean by that is, and again, I've spoken about this before, but maybe you're the type that hasn't listened to what I said before. Um, it's too complicated to cause it a whole partial over, but for basic purposes, in the 1500s, if you were, want to be from, and you were one of the types that I just described, chances are you would leave the country and run away to the Muslim area, if that worked, like across to North Africa or maybe to the Middle East. And to the Muslim, it doesn't care whether you're Jewish or not. So you could come out of the closet and join an existing Jewish community. Salonika, Istanbul, Cairo, Damascus, Aleppo, etc. Yushalayim. That's one way. Some went to Italy. That's another mahal. That, that also happened if you were in the right place in Italy and not the wrong place. In the wrong place, they could kill you. And some did like this. <clears throat> they went to Northern Europe, uh, especially to, to Amsterdam and to Hamburg. Uh, for various reasons, the Dutch were in revolt against the Spanish. It's known as the Dutch were Protestant and uh, were in an 80 years war, 80 year war of liberation against the Spanish, which they finally won. It went from 1560 to 1640, if you care. And, uh, For a number of reasons, the Dutch, it's too complicated to go into now, the Dutch allowed 
these Portuguese um, Catholics to say, we're coming out of the closet, we're not Catholics, and we're starting something called Judaism. We don't know exactly what it is, but we're starting something called Judaism, and we're making something called a synagogue. And then these, and, and that was a very important event. And they eventually got in contact with others, Sephardim, like from Venice, who were FFBs. And they send them rabbis and stuff like that. And little by little, they developed, starting in the early 1600s, the famous uh, Spanish-Portuguese community, or Portuguese Jews, of Amsterdam, which is made entirely up of the type of people I just described. Every single one of them was born Catholic, meaning in the way I just described. Every one of them knew that they're Jewish and, and escaped. Um, they had all types of uh, professional and intellectual profiles, which is part of our story. And uh, they had to rediscover Judaism. Uh, and it often was not what they had imagined it to be, because back when they were in Spain and Portugal, there were no Sepharim. So the only thing they could read was the was the Christian Bible. And the Christian Bible as the Old Testament and New Testament, so they concentrated in the Old Testament. As you know, you don't get from the Old Testament Judaism as you and I practice today. Because we have a Torah Shavuot in addition to Torah Shavuot, which lies at the very heart of the story that I'm talking about today and this book that uh, that's in the catalog. Um, over th This was a constant problem, meaning when some Jews would land off the ship in Amsterdam and similar places, they would say, what the heck is this? What's the fill-in? You know, what's what's the Pesach Seder? What's It's not in the Bible, you know? Well, you know, a, a million things we do, which is from the Gemara, you know, Torah Shavuot. What is this? This is not what we imagined. Now, most Jews simply said like this. Okay, I've, I'm a Tinnik Shanishba. I didn't know better. The Catholics in my home country have deprived me of knowledge of my own religion. I have to start from scratch. And even though I'm 50 years old, I will go and learn from somebody, you know, a kid, how to practice Judaism. Now that you bring a certain humility, which is which is a very admirable trait, you see, is a humility. But other people say like this, I'm a professor, I'm a general, I used to be a bishop, I used to be a big macher back in Spain and Portugal, I left over here, I'm not going to learn from the little pisher, you know what I mean? And second of all, I have my own head, I was very successful back in Spain, now I'm coming over here, this Judaism I see looks like to me stupid, retarded, you know, it's crazy, and uh, I want to change it, or... I'll go along with it, but I don't really believe in it. Where I have time is on it. You know, you see what I'm saying? They had a complex interaction with their own native uh, religion, the way it was practiced, because Judaism hasn't been dead since the Bible. You have this living tradition of the Torah Shabbat. This is the background. Now, our hero, whose name was David Nieto, his grandfather was in Amsterdam. So, in other words, he was one of these guys I'm talking about. Right? He's a Jew escaped from Portugal or Spain, wherever. He ended up in Amsterdam, along with these other guys. I repeat, the entire show was composed of this element. In other words, there weren't any Sephardi FFBs there. You get it? The whole show was BTs. Everybody was escaped, or or the children of escaped. You know, so I mean, in that regard, you could be a, a child born in Amsterdam, and it's already Yiddishkeit, so, you know, but I mean, you come from that background, Okay. They speak among each other Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, they don't know Hebrew so well. Uh, the rabbis at that time, who also were from that element, the rabbis themselves came from BT background, you know, made their own art scroll to make it, I'm serious, to make the Judaism more available to them. A lot of stuff translated into Spanish. And our hero will do that also. 
Uh, Menashe ben Israel, of course, comes to mind with his halacha books and his, uh, you know, chumash commentaries, all to try to bridge the gap between the Balabatim and the Shul, who I guess you would say were well-meaning, but on the other hand, uh, had a lot to learn, you know, and uh, and had a lot of tainas on Judaism. Look, I've never met an Orthodox Jew who doesn't have tainas on Judaism, you know. So, uh, you know, this, the, and, and this is what it was. So there was this guy, uh, Nieto, and he lived in Amsterdam. Now, what these guys did was they usually went into business. Merchants. At that time, the Dutch economy was unbelievable. It was, it was, it was amazing. And they were participants in this. Moreover, from Holland, from, the, from Amsterdam, started satellite colonies, the most important of which was in London. In other words, the Dutch rabbi, Menashe ben Israel, and some other Dutch guys, again, it's too long to go into. I, if you, I did a podcast on Menashe ben Israel. Go listen to it. He persuaded the English government in the 1650s, was Oliver Cromwell, to, if not exactly allow the Jews to return to England, but to do so on the basis of don't ask, don't tell. In other words, they never passed a law that Jews are allowed to go in England, but it became understood you can wink, wink, wink. Okay? And therefore, other Portuguese Jews of the type I'm describing from Amsterdam and elsewhere started moving to London and places like that, where, if anything, the political condition was even better than in, in, in Holland. It's, it's a very interesting story. So our hero, his grandfather was from Amsterdam, but being a businessman, he sent his son, he must have been a frummy, I'll tell you why. He sent his son, Pinchas Nieto, to Venice. Venice was the B'nai Brock for the Spanish-Portuguese world. You just have to understand that. Venice and Padua, that was like Mea Charm for these guys. Lafi Madrigosa. That's where you had, you know, uh, Spanish-Portuguese communities that were uh, connected much more closely with Sfardim Tahurim, with FFB communities. There was a much bigger Torah tradition. They actually had yeshivas and things like this of one size or another. And that was a much heavier... Moving there was like moving, like I say, to B'nai Brock according to the standards of the Spanish-Portuguese uh, Jewry. So he sent his son there. And our hero was born in Venice, which is very important. <clears throat> now, he sent his son to, to, to um, Venice clearly to learn yeshiva. Uh, what do I mean? At that time, the... The Spanish-Portuguese Jews produced one Godel Hador. I don't think they had more than that that I can think of, but one Godel Hador they did produce, and that's the Dvar Shmuel of Venice, Shmuel Abuhab, who I've never done. I'm always waiting for them to reprint. Finally, the Zichronar and the others put the, the, his Sefer, Shalos and Shubis, uh, Dvar Shmuel, which is a classic. It's quoted by Mishnabur, uh into nice print instead of chicken scratch, and chicken scratch in, in Spanish, uh, Hebrew writing, which is different than the Ashkenaz Hebrew writing. Whatever. <clears throat> it's a wonderful savior. So, we're dealing with somebody who was as a from family, especially by the Spanish-Portuguese culture, and he sent his kid to learn yeshiva in Venice. And he did. If you ever look into Rosh they there's, he sent Shilas to the to the, to Rashiva, to the Rosh Shmuel. So, our hero, who's the son of this Pinchas David Nieto, was born in a very from background. All of his life, he's going to be a real frummy. But the father, after learning yeshiva for so and so many years, went into business. Why not? And was a matzliach, you know, and moved around Italy different places. And so our hero was born in Venice, moved with his family in different places. Okay? But clearly with a father, like I'm talking about, he had a Gemara education. 
I want that to be very clear. Now, being Italian and being Spanish-Portuguese, they would first learn Tanakh, then Mishnayis, then Gemara, you know, in some way. I'm sure they didn't do it exactly the Maral way, but still, they had something along the lines of what you and I would call a modern day school education in the sense of having a first grade, a second grade, a third grade. And eventually, like when he's 15 or whatever, they sent him to Padua, which I've mentioned many, many times. And in Padua, you could do like YU. The, the ghetto, uh, the Jewish ghetto in Padua was a block away from the college, from the university. The university was the most famous university in Europe. And it was the one that allowed Jews to go for MD degree. And so our hero grows up in the late 1600s, like many others. Uh, not at all unusual. Uh, going to university, but also taking smicha classes, I guess you'd call it, in the ghetto. So um, by the age of 25 or 26, he put in, he spent, no, it was at least a decade uh, throwing himself into into uh, learning uh, all day long, every day. And by the time he's in his mid-20s, he ends up with a smicha, a PhD, and an MD. Okay? That's very interesting. A triple degree. So he's not only Rabbi Doctor, he's Rabbi Doctor Doctor, right? Is a is a smicha. Uh, so in other words, he will be a dying, he'll write Shalas and Shubas and things like that. Uh, he had a PhD because at that time, uh, medicine was a branch of philosophy, believe it or not. Uh, and he had an MD. And I will also go on to add, this is not so well known, the University of Padua was at the cutting edge of science of the 17th century. Therefore, they have less of an emphasis on the... I mean, they did learn the Greek and Latin junk. They did do that. But they also had classes um, of the new science that was just beginning to begin to begin. Uh, our hero is a product of the age when science is just beginning. You know, it's like Yashar McCandia last time. It's a little bit later. You know, Galileo's out there. Copernicus is out there. William Harvey's out there. Harvey and Galileo both taught in the Padua, by the way. And you're starting to do anatomy, Vesalius, you know, names that you probably don't know. These are the people who are laying the foundation for Isaac Newton for, for the modern science. Now, science is not holding... <laughs> Science has moved past that, but nevertheless, they were breaking the old paradigms. Uh, for the begin, for the first time, people were starting to say Aristotle was full of it. You know, that was like a sh a shock. Uh, you know, Hippocrates and Galen is not the last word in medicine. That was a shock. Used to be that everybody thought, oh, the Greeks are the you know the old Greek science and the Greek medicine is true, and now for the first time they said, well, actually, it's not true. You know, <laughs> see, he's from this Tukufa, Okay, he's from this Tukufa. So he, I would say today, by today's standards, he had an ex, as good an education as you can get in science. I'm emphasizing the word medicine, science, and math. Uh, our era is going to be really big into all the sciences of that era, um, as well as the old sciences. So I'm talking about astronomy and medicine, of course, and anatomy, of course, and uh, mathematics and geometry and trig. It's it's really interesting. He really had a first-class education, okay? First-class education, according to the Madrigue of the late 17th century. In addition to that, he had smicha. In other words, Pado was, a, was the most chashiv yeshiva in um, Italy. I don't know, it's never been clear to me 100% how they worked out college and yeshiva, you know what I mean? Was it the Nair Israel style? Was it the YU style? Was it this style? You know, Turo. 
it's not clear. One thing is clear, that there were shiurim in the ghetto. There was a yeshiva just for for for, for uh, no college. There was. There was also in the yeshiva a college program. There was. In fact, boys used to come from all over Europe to learn there for that reason. And how precisely it worked out, it's not clear, but I emphasize again and again and again the physical proximity. The university was very close to the uh, to the to the ghetto. So notice you could go to Shear and then if in ten minutes it's class, you know, the the, the, the Shear could end at one o'clock and you could physically be in your university classroom at one ten, so to speak. You see what I'm saying? So I wish I knew more about the details of how these guys pulled off yeshiva in college, but they were from. That's what I want to emphasize. Uh, 99% of the time, it did not result in the guy losing his frumkite. Uh, and that's why all these big rabbis and those types, a lot of them went through this system and came out pretty doggone from, which is, which is really interesting. And I've emphasized it in other occasions when you talk about some of the famous rabbonim. I emphasize rabbonim. Uh, Gedolim, who went to university this way, you know, the Pachad Yitzhak, for example, and the Morpurgo, and people like that. So our hero come from that schnick. I would not call him a Godolador, but he was a fully, he, he, he knew how to pass the childless. And as a matter of fact, when he finishes, and he's in his mid 20s, so he's born in 1654, so, you know, he's approximately 1680, he's going to spend the next 20 years. No, it's from 25 to 45, Be'erach. Let me just think this out. Yeah, it's about right. 26 to 46. Those years, knocking about in Italy, looking for a position. Uh, he was fully competent to be a officer, but there were, you know, Italy did not lack Talmud HaChemim with, with college degrees. And so, it's not surprising that a guy like this, after this and that and the other, I think he tried to start a yeshiva here, there, I don't remember exactly, he ended up in Livorno in the 1680s and 1690s. Livorno, which I've mentioned from time to time, or Leghorn as the British called, is a port city in Italy on the west coast, in other words, facing towards Spain. Uh, it was the most important Jewish community in the 1600s, 1700s, more than Rome and more than Venice. Because the, the rulers there, the Grand Duke of Tuscany, said, I want to uh, do a Ronald Reagan, uh, what's it called, Enterprise Zone. In other words, I need money, so I'll, I'm willing to start a city, a port city, and just leave it to pure capitalism. No, there'll be no rules over there. And even a Jew can live there, even a Muslim, and just do your thing, make money. There are no labor unions, no nothing. It's just a pure money. And uh, the Portuguese Jews flocked there, and they made it an exclusive. You're not allowed to live there if you're not a Spanish-Portuguese Jew. Isn't that interesting? And it became a headquarters of the richest Sephardi community. And uh, I would say the Balabatan, by and large, were business people, you know. Uh, but they, uh, as Spanish-Portuguese communities go, I would say, I think I'm right about this, as Spanish-Portuguese communities go, I would say Livorno was the firmest. Not that it was so firm. Um, it was very Spanish-Portuguese. In other words, there was a basin, but the basin is not allowed to touch Choshen Mishpat. <laughs> Get it? That is run by the merchants themselves. And you had a lot of millionaires there because they could do all the trade they wanted. And without going into details, they were amazingly successful in the Mediterranean trade and all the rest of it. And so, 
money they had, and there were no ghettos. That's the point. They were allowed to live wherever they wanted, which was unbelievable in Italy in that time. Everywhere else, the Jews had to live in ghettos. And so you had this Spanish-Portuguese community of three, 4,000 people that were doing well. Our hero was a dying there in the basement. So that's a child. You could do worse. Uh, you know what I mean? You could do worse. Uh, it's like being on the basin. I don't know. Like where I was last week, like the five towns. You know, something like that. I'm, I'm being very serious. It was a decent salary. And, you know, it was okay. And that's where he lived for 20 years. Um, I would say this. Coming from his background, he knows that interact with people who are not Jewish. Right? I mean, he went to college. He dealt with professors. He dealt with classmates. He understood as an Italian Jew and a Spanish-Portuguese Jew, the world is not only Jewish. And so you have to know how to deal with the Goyim. And he was friends with the Archbishop and all this kind of business. And he even wrote a book at that time in Spanish about the calendar because he, apparently he was really, one of his pet things, which bores me, but was fascinating to him, is calendar issues. And he even wrote something called Pascalogia, which is about Pascal when Easter falls out vis-a-vis Pesach. And the long and the short of it was to prove that the Jewish calendar is better than the Christian calendar. Which at that time, they were still using the Julian calendar. This is the period when Europe was slowly switching from the old calendar to the calendar that they presently use. The old calendar was all screwed up. Uh, you know, uh, that's why the calendar of Pope Julius had to be replaced by the calendar of Pope Gregory. And without going into that, that you know, he was into that kind of stuff. So in other words, he's a from guy. He's a dying. You know what that means. You have all Shilas. If it's not Chosha Mishpat, it is, you know, Yerodeya, Ebenezer, and, and, and Orchayim. Okay? And I'm not saying he didn't know Chosha Mishpat. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying I happen to know that in Livorno, the, you know, the Balabatim wouldn't let the Bezin touch Chosha Mishpat, which is very interesting. They insist on running it themselves. Okay. You know, you can even defend that from a certain point of view. What they call Stem Tusa and things like that. Whatever. Let it be. Uh, now, he also was a Darshan, which, which you know what that means. So, that if, if it's Livorno, you have to give speeches every week or two, whatever, uh, on the Parsha and things like that, or, you know, bar mitzvahs and weddings and all that kind of business, in Spanish, okay? Spanish and Portuguese. But another is from. So, uh, you have a perfect guy. He has a PhD, and an MD, and what do you call it? And he's a rough. And I think he also practiced medicine. Um, so, you know, that's how he made a prognosis. Now, if that's all it was, he could have spent the rest of his life over there. You know, why not? Like I say, be a dying in the five towns. What's the problem? But he got a certain opportunity from London because at that time, as I said before, there had arisen in London, slowly, a Spanish-Portuguese community over there. Uh, starting in time, Bolivar Cromwell, which is the middle of the 1600s, a few showed up, then some more, then some more. I told you before that the Dutch had an amazing economy. England at this time was starting to have an amazing economy. England. Uh, England at the time of Tomba was a golden age of capitalism, or if you prefer, a dark age of capitalism. So in other words, if you made money, is everything. If you didn't have any money, you're nothing. And the um, 
there was a gigantic gap in the uh, population, you know, between the rich and the poor, and the aristocracy and the other stuff like that. You know, you can just imagine uh, what they were like. And, uh, you know, like I said, remember this is when they had the debtor's prison and things like that. So if, if what do you call it? If, if the, so the lower classes were drek, betok, drek, you know, the, the society really, you know, was bad on them and they were savage and the upper classes lived a, a grand old time and you had crime and this and, that and the other into all this. And England was just about to start to start winning wars and creating an empire. And therefore the, the possibilities of trade, and that's what the Jews went into were amazing, you know, trade with the the New World, with the West Indies, uh, you know, with, with the, you know, the 13 colonies and so on and so forth. Um, so uh, these Jews were well positioned to move in on that. They're Spanish, Portuguese Jews, all of whom were in the merchant business. And uh, they were creating a community in, in London. Now, uh, actually, Sasportas, who I talked before, was a rabbi there for a while. They, need, they needed, as they saw it, a chacham. I think they saw themselves like a satellite of the Amsterdam. And, you know, this is how it went. And I would not call this a learned community because, again, these are what you call uh, Spanish-Portuguese balabatum and stuff like that. And, um, you know, they most of them were not born Jewish or at least their parents were not born Jewish. They were born Catholic back in the old country, had to sneak out. And this is what it was. Now, they had... A rabbi named Shlomo Ailan, who was uh, famous for being a, a Shabtai Tzvi type, uh, or more exactly, he was a Talmud of Nathan of Gaza. Um, how they got him exactly is a story by itself. But he was a rub there for so many years, and he was fine for them. All you have to do is is give some drushes and, you know, things like that in Spanish, and, uh, you know, deal with, uh, let's put it this way, learning was not going on over there. Uh, th- that was a big problem. You know, you have Judaism without yeshivas, it's it, it, it's not going to work so well. Uh, but anyway, in 1701, he 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 was promoted, Shlomo Eilon, to become the uh, chacham, the rabbi of the Spanish Portuguese in Amsterdam, where the communities have been richer, and they needed a new guy, and somehow or other, I think Italian Jews living in in London said we got a great guy over here, who would be a perfect uh, candidate. He's a uh, He's a dying and a good darshan. Knows how to give a speech. He's got all the right credentials. And he's an MD and a PhD. You can't get better than that. And he's a nice guy. You understand? Because he knows how to get along with people. He's a nice guy. And so they said, they gave him one of these, uh, you know, contracts, sight unseen. Because, you know, because all they did was, he didn't know his resume, get it? He had the right resume. And so he became the rabbi of the Spanish Portuguese shul, Bevis Marshall, which was about to be built uh, for the rest of his life. So he was there for almost 30 years, from 1701 to 1728, I think, something like that. He became the Rove in, 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 in London. And if you see a picture of him, he's an Italian modern rabbi. Then Yamakone has a wig, get it? You cover the head with the peruke, with the wig. And, you know, he's a very uh, educated, intelligent. And they gave him a nice salary. It's interesting, they knew he's a doctor. Uh, I bet you people in the shul included some doctors. They said, we don't want competition from the rabbi, <laughs> right? And by the way, he had, if he's coming with an MD from the University of Padua, that's like having an MD today from Harvard, you know what I'm saying? Uh, that was an excellent school. So they didn't want 
So the local MDs in the shul didn't want competition from the rabbi. So he said, well, listen, we'll give you a good salary. You won't need it. They pay me 100 pounds a year, which at that time was a lot of money. And an extra 20, 30 pounds. You know, he was well compensated, as we would say today. And therefore, you don't have to, to uh, take any patience. Which, despite that, it seems to be, Caesar Ross says he had some patience. Anyway, you know how that goes. Guys like this. Listen, uh, you know, you go to the rabbi, he won't charge you. I have, a, I have an ink over here, my pain, my mother-in-law doesn't feel well. Something like but generally speaking, this was the thing. So they got themselves somebody, unlike Roshlama Island, they got themselves somebody who Mamish was a model and a personification of what you and I would call Torah Mata, Torah Derechers. In the good sense of the term, right? I mean, somebody who had a good Torah education and a very, very good um, secular education, an excellent secular education, according to the Madriga of that time. And he spent the rest of his life in London. Uh, and he tried his best for the next 30 years or 25 years, whatever it was, to hold the fort and build up the Yiddishkeit as much as he can. He knew as well as anybody. And, and let me say this. In the Spanish-Portuguese community, they would have called the Mahmad. That's the, the board of directors, the Balabatim, the rich, richy rich Balabatim. They're the bosses. And they would have constitutions which say that in any question... You know, the Mahmud is the supreme uh, ruler. Okay, that's just how it goes over there. Now, uh, a rabbi can spend his time fighting with them about that, or he can be a diplomat and try to work together. And our hero was a diplomat. So all during the years he was there, you know, he, like I said before, was a good person. He was a logical person. And anything he wanted to get done, he would, of course, totally run by them. And negotiate with them and this and that the other. I would say they got along very well. Matter of fact, they eventually doubled his salary. So he may have been, I won't say he was the highest paid rabbi in Europe, but he was up there. Okay? According to the, the I mean, 200 pounds a year plus. Back in those days, was a, was a nice salary. Okay? Now he worked like a dog for it. Okay? So what does it mean to be a rov of a kehila? You're the av basin. Actually, you're the basin. <laughs> right? Yeah, you're the basin. Uh, in London, he handled all kind of shilas, naturally. But it's also true that the Jews we're dealing with weren't so from. What Now, what do I mean when I say not so from? I don't mean necessarily hashkafically. I'm just saying it's old traditionalist Judaism that was going to plague England all during the 18th century. They don't really keep kosher so well. They don't really keep Shabbos so well. They don't really keep this so well. They're lax in this and that and the other. Now, we're used to that in the history of Claudius Rowe. You know, that you can preach against, you try to be Makar of people, and he did. And, you know, try to work on it. And your life consists of trying to move people, if I can use the expression a little bit more to the right. You understand? And the way he registered success was, can you get them to be a little more observant or something like that? And that's how he saw the... And, and he was right, according to the old model. You know, that's how you define the, the job of the rabbinate, of the rabbinus, once upon a time. Now, to be perfectly honest, um, as we shall see, uh, this is a failure because the rabbinate in and of itself is never enough. We know now with hindsight that there's no such thing as a successful rabbinate unless it's connected to some kind of yeshiva system. Get it? You know, if you're talking about 
uh, the shul, the synagogue, plays an important role in Jewish life. If, I'm going to exaggerate now, if everybody in the shul has yeshiva education. So notice, if everybody's from, and the yodim, and they all go to a Yomi, or something like that, so that's one thing. But if you're talking about the old traditionalism, which the people don't know anything, and all the Judaism they get is coming out of the synagogue, that's never enough to make people really from anything intense. This we know today, and as I said before, it's like a truism. But uh, a lot of people don't realize this, unless you're a thoughtful observer. Uh, I go around the country sometimes speaking, I mean, you can see it. And today things, ironically, are a little improved because of the internet, (laughs) of all things. You know, you know, you can access any shear or anything like that you want from the internet. But once upon a time, that was not the case. If it's all up to the Rabbonis, it's Gatenished. This is a lesson that's come home to us hard in the last 250 years. And our hero knew this back in 1701. And uh, he, he tried his best to make it, believe it or not, he said it made a yeshiva in London. Um, but it wasn't big enough to ground. It had like a dozen boys, and he taught them best he can. He gave it his best shot. I don't want to say that. He gave it his best shot. And um, I would say a lot of his time was put into trying to teach Talmudim, which is the right thing to do. But in that world, what I can tell you is, especially in the 1700s, especially this farm over there, but everybody, when it came to England, it's the problem of America minus yeshivas. It was the super materialism. And that's just what England was. Uh, like I said before, the society really was a society where if you don't have money, you're garnished. Uh, everything depends on money, money, money. And the problem is, when you start to get a lot of money, you don't know what to do with it. It became a servant of the materialism, you know, they worshiped the golden calf. And the golden calf was alive and well in England in the Christian society in the 18th century and in the uh, Jewish society, therefore, as well. It's just that that's what it was. Okay, so success was not necessarily in keeping your kids from success was in making your kids rich. This this is how it went. Now, because it is, you know, the the the, the Yates and Harv consumerism, shall I say, and of Gashmias was maybe the most powerful of the HRs, but there were many HRs running around, as there always are. The uh the, the Gashmias one was really tough. Uh, and that's how it went. So people put in all their time, you know, trying to make money, which I understand. But you know how it goes that you end up not keeping Shabbos, not keeping this, not keeping that. Uh, but once in a while you do, maybe here at Russia, so you, you know, for a couple of Shabbos, you're back to regular till you slip slide again. You know, that whole way. That's the era in which he lived. <laughs> okay? In fact, anybody living in England in the 1700s, and 1800s too, but I'm talking about the 1700s, what we call the 18th century, that was the Matthias. But as far as Bepharhesi is concerned, they wanted a shul. Obviously, they wanted to be Orthodox. You know, they wanted to run according to the ways that their fathers had sort of laid it out there. Um, they liked that Spanish-Portuguese system where the Muhammad is sort of like dictators. You know, uh, it's a very interesting world that, you know, we don't see today. And if you were taxpaying money, they had, you're a Yahidim, you know, that means you're a paid-up member of the community. And all this shit, okay? But formally, it was it was from. Formally, it was from. And you did have from members in the community. Uh, but what's the most interesting part, as far as we're concerned today, is the people in the community who 
it was not just about materialism because that was everybody, but I'm not, but people in community who just it wasn't so much a problem simply of materialism, but it was a problem of uh, hashkafa. Okay, uh, and our hero was very aware of this. So there were a bunch of people there. This is England in the early 1700s. <clears throat> he came right at the end of William and Mary, right at the end of, of, of King William, if you know what that is. It's William of Orange who became William III, the King of England. There was a Dutchman from Holland, and there was a politics of the 17th century with James II and so forth, you know, all that. And uh, suffice it to say that he was elected to be King of England. <clears throat> His wife was uh, from the royal family, from the Stuarts. And uh, he had formerly, I mean, he was also the ruler in Holland, in, in Amsterdam. And uh, he was the main enemy of Louis XIV, so there were a lot of wars. And therefore, in the time of William, there was always a war going on. And uh, if you have wars going on, it means you need money and also logistics, military supplies. That's where the Jews could come in. Get it? The Jews were into... They perfected the art of supplying armies in the late 17th century. Even Oliver Cromwell, believe it or not, had his Jewish guy, Carvalho. Uh, and if you're William of Orange, if you're William III, you know, well, let's put it this way. Uh, you look on the Jewish community as somebody that's supposed to be the golden calf. I mean, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, 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 the cow that supplies milk, you know. Knows I need money and help. And the Jews tried their best to help him. He even threatened him sometimes. He says, uh, <clears throat> I can make it hard for you. Now, he didn't mean it. He didn't mean it. But that's how he talked. He got along very well with the Jews. Therefore, he, like Trump, you know, he could cuss him out because he, he got along well with that. It's a very interesting story. Um, because, again, he had been in Amsterdam anyway. You know, the Jews always supported him. Let's put it that way. The Jews always supported him. And they helped him in a lot of uh, uh, harsh spots. You may not understand what I'm talking about. The Jews were allowed back in the time of Oliver Cromwell. But Oliver Cromwell was a dictator. He killed the King of England and took over for 10 years. That was in the 1650s. That's the only time in English history where there wasn't a king. You understand? All throughout the last thousand years and more, England always had a king. And when Oliver Cromwell died, the king a little bit later, the king came back. That was Charles II. And ever since then, they have a king. So the current queen is sort of descended from Charles II. Sort of from the Stuarts whatever, as we'll see, um, sort of. And, you know, so it's like a continuous monarchy. You get what I'm saying? And Charles II had been hiding in Holland for a long time from Oliver Cromwell. See, he also liked the Jews. So that's really was the, was the lucky thing for the Jews, that, you know, not only Oliver Cromwell let him in, but the King Charles also said, just let him in and don't ask, don't tell. Then it became the policy of the kings of England. Charles II, James II, William and Mary, and afterwards also. The Jews are here, they just leave them alone. You understand? Uh, which re- which meant that um, the, the, the Jews are interested in, in maintaining these kings of England because they're good to the Jews. I'll tell you something remarkable. I think I did this once. Uh, William III actually went... Uh, this one happened today, I don't think. He went to be Friday night guest for Friday night dinner, Shabbos dinner, by the richest Jew, by Solomon de Medina, the guy who was supplying the armies. Uh, you know what I said? The King of England, in like 1699 or 1700, went to the house of a Jew, a Shammar Shabbos Jew, to some degree, for Friday night dinner. In other words, 
I don't think they did Shalom Aleichem or not, but they make Kiddush, you know. This is, this is unheard of. You could, it's, 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 it's not even up for conversation that another ruler in Europe, the king of France or Prussia or the king of Poland or the Austrian emperor, any of that stuff, would ever go visit, be a house guest of a Jew. It's just not conceivable. You see? So England was very different. And when, uh, and as a matter of fact, when our hero came to be rabbi in London, the first thing he did was write a, a, a thing in Spanish, you know, a prayer for King William who was sick and died not long afterwards. And, you know, it's very British, a prayer for the king, in Spanish, of course. Uh, and then, the, then he was succeeded by Queen Anne. That would be his sister-in-law. Not that it matters to you. And, she, and so she was the queen during most of the time our hero was there. From 1702 to 1714, I think. And um, again, you know, she didn't bother the Jews. She got along well with them and all the rest of this. Matter of fact, I think, if I remember correctly, I think she visited the synagogue or she gave money towards it or something like that. This the Spanish Portuguese show. So the British government, the English government, was showing a favor to the Jews in a way you didn't get anywhere else. Now, the community was always scared that it could turn on a dime because in Europe, it usually turns on a dime. You and I today, looking back, know that England never did turn. It's very interesting. It never did turn. Matter of fact, the situation in England was extraordinary. There was a guy who wrote a whole book accusing the Jews of blood libel. You know what I mean, the Alil Islam. The British government closed down the uh, the, the, the bookstore or something like that and um, and uh, arrested the guy. And it was a case of, I think it's called Rex versus Osborne or something like that. And uh, he made him pay penalty because you can't attack the Jews because then it's it's like in, uh, you know shining fire in a crowded theater you're going to lead it to a riot it's, this, this would never happen on the continent <clears throat> so our hero was living in a very unusual time and I don't think he himself realized it for a while what's interesting is it's, it, at least based on what he writes he never learned English well which is funny to me because he knew 10 languages you know being educated look he knew Hebrew he knew Italian obviously uh, French, uh, Greek, Latin, uh, you know, from college, and uh, Spanish and Portuguese, of course. No, they're very linguistic. But he used to write. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't feel comfortable writing in English, uh, because you know what you learn. Gersis and Iancus, or what you learn later in life, you're not comfortable with. What you learn when you're young, you feel comfortable with. That's just interesting of its own. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, so he was living in very interesting times, and. Uh, because you had this liberal atmosphere relative to the rest of Europe, so a lot of the Jews in his show um, were not culturally insular at all. Um, by that I mean the following. Are they following what's going on in European culture and English culture in English society? The answer is yes. Now, usually in the traditional kind of community, even the Spanish-Portuguese community, they're interested in business and what's happening in wars and what's no gate to, to commerce and money, money, money. Matt, yes. But whether Shakespeare wrote a new play or something like the heck with that, you know, who cares? But that's not what it was in England. It was a more liberal atmosphere as I just described. And therefore, you definitely had people in the show who took some kind... I mean, you couldn't go to college because it was Cambridge and Oxford and a Jew couldn't go to that at that time. But there are a lot of other opportunities for getting uh, education. And there were newspapers and things like that. In England, this is the time, this is the Takufa of Sir Isaac Newton. And so all kind of unusual things were going on 
in English culture and science and questioning religion. That's the point I want to bring up. You start to have a lot of deism, you know. Deism mainly means that God created the world and then left. <laughs> That's what it boils down to. You know, he created the world, he set it up, he wound up the clock, and then he left. He's nothing to do with the world anymore. Uh, so it's running on nature. Uh, and So again, God created the nature, but now nature runs on its own. And there were a hundred different ideas running around that time. This is really like for a, a, a lecture series, not for a podcast. But take it from me that the that, that England was bubbling with all ideas. And Christianity was under attack for a whole bunch of reasons, which therefore by extension would mean that Judaism is under attack, if you follow what I mean. Because if you're disbelieving in the Bible for this reason and that reason, that as affecting the Jews as well. And the Jews were not culturally insulated, not what's going on. There were quite a number of people who went on. <laughs> Then there, our hero had to use all of his secular knowledge to try to defend constantly the the truth and 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 uh, and what's the right the, the 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 accuracy the validity of Judaism, which is a tough sell for an educated person because he can't prove this, he can't prove that, and he definitely have trouble when you try to push over the the Torah Shabbat. Notice it's hard enough to get him to believe in the stories of the Old Testament. Then you also want to throw in the Talmud and all the rest of it, a lot of which sounds ridiculous, outlandish. It, it sounds that way, you see? And so he had a lot of skeptics in his Kehillah. That's the point I want to bring out. He had a lot of skeptics in his own Kehillah. Now, what's interesting is, in his lifetime, I, I find this interesting. There are a whole bunch of them who 10, 20 years later after his death converted to Christianity or something like that. Which means that while he was alive, he was able to prevent that because they clearly had a, a Rav who was very educated secularly. You understand? And he clearly knew how to be Makar of people and speak to them in an intelligent way. So you couldn't talk to a guy like him um, with his education, it was college education and background, and say Judaism is ridiculous. Because if someone with his education still... Defends Judaism, there's got to be something to it. It's the same story for the Hirsch Mahalach. You understand? It's the PhD Mahalach, which is if you show me a rabbi that has no secular education whatsoever, I'm not even curious what he says. The only reason he doesn't believe anything is his ignoramus. He doesn't even know it exists. So I'm going to ask what the Shagasari thinks about Sir Isaac Newton, you know, or uh, or John Toland or something. He doesn't even know it exists. So I'm not garbage anything some of the Shagasari says. You say, but wait a minute, he's a big rabbi, he knows a lot of Gemara. That don't mean nothing to me. You, you hear the, you, that's the mentality. You get it? But if you say like this, you know who's speaking and still believes in Judaism and in the Gemara and the, and the Gezeris and the Derais and the Rabbanon? A guy with a doctorate in philosophy from Harvard University or in that case, University of Padua. A medical degree, so he knows science. You get it? He understands how science works. And all the rest of it. And Afal Pekain, he still defends what the Gemara says, so maybe it's something that's worthwhile listening to at least. And I'll say it again. While he was alive, and this is what I mean by the limited power of the Rabbanus, a Rav can, on personal basis, with X number of Balabatim, if he has a personal Shaykhus with them, male or female, that itself, over history, you see, has the possibility to keep these people in the straight and narrow. But it's very shaky. It all depends on a personal relationship. You understand? If you happen to meet the right kind of rabbi, and he happens to have the right kind of education, and he can speak in your language, 
and speak like an intelligent person, not like just some frummy dummy. You see, that might say, you know, even though I myself have kashas and I have spakers, all the rest of it, but I'm going to stay within the full, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to keep on the derech and not go off the derech because of the personal relationship I have with this uh, rabbi. That's exactly who Dov Nieto was. But, you know, that only lasts as long as the Kesher is there. If the rabbi dies or something like that, you don't have that anymore. And, you know, the next rabbi might be just some yeshiva type guy, with, you know, no shakas to talk to him. And he could dissipate, and that is what happened. So it's very fascinating in the wider picture to look at, you know, what the rabbi is capable of accomplishing on the one hand and his limitations on the other, at least to me. It's very interesting in that way. Uh, now, because I, I might also add that being who he was, he made it his business to have very good relationship with all the big goyim. I'm talking about the intellectuals. He had shaykhs with a number of famous theologians and scientists and this and that. The other day, of correspondence between them. Cecil Roth, you know, uh, used to collect this stuff. And, you know, people you've never heard of today, but who were important people at that time. And the idea over here is always make a kiddush Hashem. And I'll t that I can definitely say he did, because once again, I'll say the same thing. You have a Christian intellectual in the early 18th century. To him, the Jews are just long noses with the speak Yiddish and talk to Talmud, and they don't know nothing else. In other words, they're depraved. They're narrow-minded. They don't know anything. They're still living a thousand years ago. Therefore, there's nothing respectable about Judaism. Masha Enkain, if you go to London, you meet this guy, and as I said before, he's an MD and a PhD, and Alpha Bikain, he's defending Judaism as he did very uh, vigorously, then it's it's intellectually defensible. You see? It's intellectually defensible. And he spent a lot of his time corresponding and personally and by, by mail with a bunch of big Christian intellectuals in Europe. Menachem and Israel did this also in his day, um, trying to explain to them, you know, what's Chumash and Rashi, what's the Gemara, what is the Jewish position on, on immortality, and, you know, trying to clear up a lot of, uh, what's the right word, urban legends and misconceptions about Judaism. And, uh, he, and by the way, he was a man of science. I'll say it again. It's, it's, it's unusual. It, he, you know, he was, he was in the math and science. Not like me. You know what I'm saying? Now, he knew history too, by the way. I want you to know. He did know history according to the level 18th century. Uh, yeah, 18th century. He knew the Greek and Latin historians. He knew Josephus. It's quite interesting. I mean, he had a vast knowledge. He's very erudite. But his, his passion was not history. His passion was math and science. And that's, that's very impressive if you're living in the early 18th century and you're a guy and you meet this guy and he's up on the latest stuff of trigonometry. and I'm serious. And geometry and astronomy and calendar junk and all this other business. You see, the guy's not a yutz. You see? He's not a yutz. He's not some frumak that doesn't know anything outside the Dalaramas. Now, he knows the Dalaramas too, but he, he, he doesn't come across as somebody who only knows the Dalaramas of Halacha. And that that makes him an interesting person. Okay? Now, uh, in addition, to, I remind you, he had a full-time salary, different he provided full-time to the job. He didn't go into things on the side. But if you give shiurim every day, as he did in his little yeshiva, uh, he had boys. He had three sons. So he tried his best. I, I totally hear where he's coming from. He's in London, which was, in terms of Gomorrah, a midbar, a midbar. 
he wanted his kids to grow up to be from and Talmud Chacham to the degree possible. And he realized he's got to do all the teaching. And, you know, that's what it was. So he had this little yeshiva. And that means you have to give Shurim every day. You know what I mean? Uh, not only that, but he's spending time with the Gaisha stuff. You know, corresponding with the Gaim. That takes up a lot of time. But in addition to that, he was, um, how should I put it? He, he had to keep up his Kesher, which I see with the skeptical intellectuals in his own community, who came in many varieties. And, and in addition to that, he was a writer. The Italian rabbis are writers. You know, uh, that's who they are. They have this thing for writing. Big, little. And uh, so he put a lot of time into writing and publishing. Uh, now, for his Balabatim, it's got to be art scroll. So this is Spanish. Get it? You know, English he didn't know well. Not, he didn't feel comfortable in it. Spanish and Portuguese and Latin, he felt very comfortable. And so all of his writings are in uh, Spanish. That was the... Now, you understand, at that time, it's still the first generation of people from the boat. So they still spoke Spanish and Portuguese. And new people are showing up every once in a while. Morano is escaping from the Spain and Portugal coming to London, so they know Spanish. The children are the first generation, so they're growing up in England, so they still know half Spanish. You know how that works. You know, you know, half Spanish, half English. And this is the environment in which he spent his life. So his stuff, for the most part, is in Spanish. And uh, he was trying, as I say, to present a very from perspective uh, in a time when, when, when from Hashkafas were under attack for very good reasons, because a lot of the from Hashkafas, if not taken in context and understood intellectually, are stupid. You see? So uh, uh, this is what he devoted a lot of time to. Now, what's ironic is the guy before him was a Shabtai Tzvi. I don't think he paraded it. I don't know how much he hit it. Now, let's get one thing straight. Shabtai Tzvi himself died in, 17, in 1676. And Shlomo Island, the rabbi before him, came like in, I don't know, the 1680s, 1690s. So by the time he came there, Shabtai Tzvi was dead. But he had Sabatianism, get it? Shabtaut. And you had all these nuts running around uh, with various doctrines, Nugea to Shabtai Tzvi himself. He's coming back. He's not coming back. He's reincarnated. But it really spun way beyond that, you know, because the Sabatians weren't really dependent, and people don't realize this, on Shabtai Tzvi himself. Uh, they had all kind of different, what's the right word, theological shittas, which seem quite bizarre to us today. Uh, but they were popular at that time, running around in manuscript form. Okay? I could explain it, but it take too long. Uh, it's a very weird phenomenon, but, you know, that that's the world he lived in. Now, our hero was not a Shabtai Tzvi guy. He was... Anti, he was a from guy. Uh, remember, his father was a Talmud of uh, the Dvar Shemol. The Dvar Shemol was the great enemy, naturally, naturally. The great enemy of Shabtai Tzviism. And he, in fact, the Dvar Shemol put uh, Nathan of Gaza in the harem when he came to uh, Venice. I have the Nusuch somewhere, somebody said, I had put in the kudos. I forget for what reason, a, a class I gave him in college. <laughs> um, so he comes from the, you know, from a background, okay? So, uh, you can be sure a guy like him, when he showed up and started giving speeches, I'm sure he dissed Sabatianism at every opportunity in a very eloquent way, and he made a lot of enemies because oh wait a minute, I'm running out of time. Let me let me fix this here one minute. Here, let me pick up. 
Uh, but you have to understand that there were X number of people in the shul, in the community, who were Sabatians, but post Shabtai speak. In my opinion, the type of people we're talking about, this guy, Safati, whatever, I think that um, they like the following part about the Sabatianism, which is its very skeptical attitude towards practical halacha. You know, in Shabtai Tzviism, meaning in, in post-Shabtai Sabatianism, is old philosophy of Mitzvah Babavera, which doesn't mean what you think it means. It's a mitzvah to do a sin. Okay? If you're interested, I did this whole series online years ago about Shabtai Tzvi. I think it's up there on my website. Um, it's too long to go into now. But suffice it to say, the new rabbi was an Orthodox Jew, you know, from Guy. They didn't like that. They were looking to take him down. And ironically, he gave a whole speech uh, against the deists. So the Sabatian types used it to try to take him down. You see what I'm saying? He had different groups of apocorsum in his, in his kahila. That is the old way. You see? That's the old school. We're talking about Western European Jews. London is as far west as you can get. It's not Poland in the middle of some shtetl at that time where things were different. We're talking about in the West where people, and especially in England, where was the most liberal and people were exposed to all the ideas out there. And, you know, he had, you know, uh, like I say, this type of skeptic and that kind of opponent and this kind of non-believer and this, that, all the different aspects of the shitas that were running around that were popular in late 17th century, early 18th century England, which is a fascinating subject, by the way. I mean, I'm not doing it justice, but I'm not here to give a seminar. You know? And it's not easy for a rabbi, Orthodox rabbi, to contend with this. And that's why he gave a bunch of speeches uh, where he said about God and nature. Because, you know, the English deists that time were already saying like this. At the most, if there is a God, you hear what I just said? If there is a God. If. This God has nothing to do with, with Olam Haza. Um, you know, maybe there's a first cause, whatever. has nothing to do with Olam Haza. And therefore, um, nature just runs as it does. And the bottom line is, you're not really, there's no Scarbonish. I mean, that's that's what it really, stripped down to everything else. No Scarbonish. Um, I might point out that Spinoza, who lived a generation earlier in um, Amsterdam, not that anybody really understood what he said. Uh, not in England, I don't think so. You know, they weren't that kind of intellectuals. It's not so easy to read and understand the, what is it, the theological tractate, right? Political theological tractate. But nevertheless, <coughs> the ideas get out there. You know how it is in Schultz. These guys hock in the back of the... <laughs> of the shul, when they go out for Kiddush Rishon, they just hock, you know, and this one says this, and this one says this, like today, talk about Trump, they talk about Corona, they don't know what the heck they're talking about, they just shoot the bull, right? So that time you had that, <coughs> with deism, with Spinozism, and all the rest of it, and so he gave a famous sermon, tried to deal ahead of one, and basically what he said is, <coughs> excuse me, what he said was, that Judaism doesn't believe in this, uh, we believe that God runs everything. Right? What you call nature, is really God operating everything. Well, his opponents in the show say like this, you're an Apocorus, because you said God is nature. So no, this is not really God, there's just nature that makes the Apocorus. You should be fired. <laughs> and he never said that. He never said that. But that's how they twist it. Now, it is possible, I don't believe this myself, but it is possible, since I'm in the rabbi business, it's very well known that there's a speech I give and the speech you heard. 
You get it? That is true. And saying it is possible people took him to mean this, but I don't believe so because I've seen the speech. He doesn't say that. This bunch of baloney. Uh, he it's it's a favorite theme of his. That he repeats over and over again. Nieto, in his books, which is the word teva doesn't exist. It's not a biblical word. Teva is from the Gemara, and it only became part of Jewish sprach in the Middle Ages with the medieval philosophers. So you can't talk about nature. The Judaism. True Judaism doesn't have a concept of nature. There's just God. You understand? Uh, but of course he says there's nature in the sense, you know, like natural laws. So it was like kind of confusing. And this led to a whole brouhaha, which was a bunch of bull. It, it, you know, they, they, they were just out to, to get the rabbi. That's all it was. It was Mamash Lashon Har. And they made a whole stink. And they brought it to the attention of the Mahamad. You know, because it's the Spanish-Portuguese community. And some of these guys... They're so full of it, they say, yes, I'm not going to come into Shul if the rabbi's there because he's a heretic. They're so full of it, you know, that like they're Tadikim. They were the bad ones. But this is how it goes, especially at Balabatim. They like flip it, you understand? Like it's his fault. And um, there's a whole brouhaha. He said, I didn't say anything wrong. He spoke with the Mama and all the rest of it. In fact, he wrote a whole treatise, a book in Spanish about divine providence and nature. Where he, where he spoke it out even more fully. Uh, there was a whole comedy of errors because, listen to this closely, the, the, the Mahamad in in, Amsterdam, in in London, they said like this, we consider ourselves a, a satellite of the mother community of Amsterdam. There they have debased in, they're able to be judging on these matters whether what our rabbi said in his sermon was kefira or not. None of these guys have any education to understand the business of, 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 of deism, of Spinozism, of the Newton ideas. You know, they were a bunch of Balabatan businessmen. They didn't know all that stuff. So anyway, they didn't know what to, what to say. And um, they sent it to Amsterdam. I forget how it goes, but it's something along the following lines. <clears throat> Amsterdam, where the rabbi was Shlomo Eilon. So you get it? They're sending to the non-from guy. You should pass it on the from guy whether what he said in his speech was from. That shows you how much baloney it was. Okay? Only in Jewish politics, in Jewish in show politics, you end up, you're asking a reform rabbi whether the Orthodox rabbi is from. That's what it boiled down to. And the Mahmoud in Amsterdam said something like, you know, let's see what the exact speech was, and uh, I don't know if we should get involved in this. Maybe we shouldn't. And then the, these Balabatim, who are the enemies of the rabbi in London, wrote to Amsterdam, and 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 to them, they responded. You know what I'm saying? So it goes to show you the Reformed guys were in favor. Minus Mino, just to screw the Orthodox guy. Wait a minute. The Mahmoud in London got so angry. You didn't reply, respond to our request. You responded to the unofficial request of just a bunch of Balabatim over here. We puzzle you. <laughs> we declare that the Mahmoud in Amsterdam is not Nogea, and they can't possibly on this question. Only because they offended the, the the pecking order by not responding to the official request of the Mahamad in London, but only to that of Balabatin, who were not authorized by the Mahamad in London to send a request. Did you follow what I just said? It's a Jewish politics par excellence. It's too funny. And all, all hell broke loose. All I can tell you, and you know, families broke up and this and that and the other. There's a lot of tension in the show. Uh, finally, a guy in London said like this, write to the Chacham Tzvi. He's Ashkenaz, he's in Hamburg. Uh, 
as Altona. Uh, he under he learned in Sephardic yeshivas, um, and which is true, and he's a from guy, of course, and you know, ask him, and they all agreed, and they actually wrote to him. Now, what's funny is the Chacham said he learned in Sephardic yeshivas, but he said like this: "Write it to me in Ashkenaz script. I can't read this Spanish Sephardic script." <laughs> you understand? Which is funny because he he learned in Sephardic yeshivas. I don't get that. But anyway, by the time it's all over, he finally got a contrast. And it, I think it's a response to number 18, is it? Something like that. Uh, it's a very famous tube of the Chacham Tzvi. That's how most people heard of David Nieto, where he says, I went through the sermon. He's a harmless kosher. His enemies are banned. Yasha Koach to the rabbi in London, what he said was true. Because he didn't say that, he didn't say nature is God. He said, nature is in God. Notice Hashem created everything, and Hashem set up the laws of nature, but Hashem still runs the show. You see? And there's a, a, two types of nature. I don't have to go into all the details. If you want to see it, it's it's often reprinted. It's a very well-known show of, of Chacham Tzvi, and the professors have written about it endlessly. <laughs> endlessly. So notice he's not a Spinozist, he's not a this, he's not a deist, all the rest of it. I remember he said like this, you guys have tainas of what he said. It's in the shlaw. Is the shlaw not from enough for you? That's what the Chalamzi ch- writes. He said, what he says in the shlaw. So, no, the shlaw is not from enough for you. You're all full of baloney. That's the problem with you. So, our hero came out looking good. And the Mahmat put all the guys in Kherim. But uh, our hero was smart enough to say, let's take off the Kherim. You understand? In other words, let's just make bygones be bygones. That's the best idea for the community, which was a smart move, which was a smart move. So that just was the beginning of his engagement with Hashkafa issues, which brings us down to what I wanted to talk about um, in context with the catalog of the rest of it, because he wrote two books in Hebrew. Everything else he wrote that I know of is in Spanish. For perfectly in Latin, for 100% understandable reasons, okay? Like I said before, that was the art school. He wants to make his ball about to be able to read it. <laughs> now, one of the problems, one of the big problems at that time was uh, this business, as I said before, which is that these guys, the Muranos and their children, came and encountered Judaism and were very skeptical about it because they came not to believe it didn't conform to what they had imagined when they were back in Spain. And there's a plus. I would say that their whole world of ideas was poisoned by the Catholic upbringing. You get it? What you learned as a Catholic was that the whole Torah of is a bunch of bull. That's what the Catholic believe. That the Jews are full of baloney. The Talmud is zero. The Bible, they believe in a certain Catholic way. But anything post-Bible is all baloney. Even if these guys ran away from Spain and Portugal because they had, deep down, you know, they knew that they're Jewish, but they still were very heavily influenced by the upbringing that they had back at home. And therefore, when they come over to Amsterdam or to London or a place like that, and they can come out of the closet and they walk into a shul and you see somebody wearing these black boxes on the head, say, what the heck is this? Where's that in the Bible? You see? Or tzitzes or things like this. And things that, you, that the average Jew takes for granted, this part of Yiddishkeit was foreign to them. And through the whole Tzimishkeit, of their ba- upbringing and background and their skepticism. Plus, remember also, <clears throat> if you're Murano, 
you were raised by your parents that what you're learning about religion in school is a bunch of bull. You have to raise a kid like that. Let's say I was living in Portugal. I'm going to go to a Catholic school and a Catholic university. I have to go to church all the time. You got to, otherwise they'll think you're, you know, not a Catholic. And I'm going to hear all this stuff against the Old Testament. I'm going to hold this stuff against Judaism. And I have to, you know, always pinch myself and say they're full of it. They don't know what they're talking about. Well, once you dis- develop this skepticism, which is a healthy skepticism, you're going to apply it to Judaism as well. So you had people in the community, and not a small number apparently, who said, you know, the Old Testament itself, the Bible is true, but uh, everything beyond that is not true. Now, remember, this is England. England is a Protestant country. And at the time I'm talking about Queen Anne, King George, I mean, the Bible was very heavily cultivated in England. So if you want to assimilate an Englishism, English society, you'll never make fun of the Bible. I mean, only a few intellectuals do that. The Hamonam is revering the Bible, but anything that's post-Bible, eh, you know, it's junk. Mom's junk. And so um, this must have been big enough. And as I said before, he had guys that he had shaykhs with, he was trying to be Makar of them. That he composed a book in Hebrew uh, called Mate Don, the staff of Don. Don is Dal, no, David Nieto, that's his short name. Or as he calls it, Kuzri Shani, which I would describe as Kuzri Part 2. Right? And it's a device. Uh, and it's like this. The original Kuzri, I think you know, is a dialogue, like a Plato dialogue. That's the form it takes. There's the king and the Khazar. Uh, there's the, the king of the Khazars and the rabbi, the Haver. Remember that? And the, and who wrote the Kuzri Bishon? Yudha Levi. Right? Back in the, uh, in the 1100s. All right? And what did he do? He was trying to defend Judaism against Islam and Christianity and that kind of stuff at that time. Uh, and so he wrote this whole dialogue, which he made up, that the king of the Khazars says, heading on the Torah is true, and the rabbi says this, and the king says that, and the rabbi says this, for many, many, many pages. And the Kuzri, as you know, became a bestseller, and still is, and became a classic of Judaism. So, um, in the time I'm talking about, in the early 1700s, late 1600s, the dialogue form was particularly popular. You know, I think Victor Miller also used that once or twice, if I'm not mistaken, right? The dialogue, Rejoice of Youth, maybe, or something like that? The dialogue form is very popular, where you have Reuben versus Shem and Shimon versus Reuben. Sam Serenfield Hirsch employs this in a certain way in the 19 letters. But at the time I'm talking about, all the books written by David Nieto are like dialogues. There's Rubin versus Shimon, there's Naftali versus Yisar, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, the Ramchal, uh, who was a contemporary of his, younger contemporary, I mean, the Ramchal was born in 1707, our hero was almost 50 years old. But nevertheless, he had, the, the original Masil Sharm was, of course, written in, in um, dialogue form. You know that, right? You've seen that around now. Uh, the Choker uh, Mekubal, Bikuch Choker Mekubal from the Ramchal, it's a vikuach, you know, between a, a choker and a makubal. It's a dialogue form. Uh, Ergas, you know, the Shem Ramuim is a dialogue form. So our hero loved that. And he says, by the way, he said, I like the dialogue form. It allows you to have back and forth. Now, it's always artificial. There's one guy writing the dialogue, you know what I mean? But you're using that literary device. 
So Yehuda Levi did that to explain Judaism in his way back in the 1100s. Now, our hero says like this, in this day and age, in 1714, the problem now is not, at least among the Jews, that they don't believe in the superiority of Judaism over Christian and Islam, because they do. Right? So that wasn't a problem like Antony Yehuda Levi, who wants to prove the superiority of Judaism over the other religions. Le Marshal, this is the most famous part. You know, you just had Christmas. Well, Jesus, two or three people saw it. Masha'en came by Moshe Rabbeinu, it was three million people. Everybody saw all claw, you saw it. You know that, that argument, right? Which, of course, worked in the Middle Ages, doesn't work today, because at that time, the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims all believed in the story of Maimon Sinai. Each religion for its own reasons. Uh, today, with an atheist, I mean, it wouldn't work. But I'm just saying, at that time, it worked. So our hero today said like this, I want to write a book in the dialogue form to defend not the idea of the Torah Shabbat, which is mainly what the what you find in Yehuda Levi, Judaism in that sense, biblical Judaism, but to defend the integrity of the concept of the Torah Shabbat, that it's not a bunch of baloney, that what we call the, the, the Torah Shabbat really is a Torah Shabbat going all the way back. Right? Against the Karoim, he says. Now, there weren't any Karaites in England. The Karoim means the people of his own community who are the, these Muranos or children Muranos, who de facto have Karite tendencies. In other words, because of the English background, because of the intellectual trends at that time, they the Bible they're willing to accept. Post-biblical and the Talmud and all the rest of it they're skeptical about and don't believe in. So it's, 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 it's not Karites in the sense that they're members of the Karite sect, but rather their Hashkafas are identical in, in different ways with, with the Karim. So it's a negative term. It means they don't believe in the Gemara. That's what it boils down to. If you don't believe in Gemara, you don't believe in everything that comes out of the Gemara. And so he said, I'm going to use the Yehuda Levi device to continue the conversation between the king of the Khazars and the rabbi. And there the conversation will, will concentrate on how can you prove that the Torah Shabbat is real and not a lie. Okay? And I'll have to do it in a way that would make sense to a Karaite. In other words, I will bring proofs, I'll try to anyway, bring proofs, logical proofs, from the Chumash itself, from the Tanakh itself. You get it? And he even says, I'm going to read the Pesukim plain, even if the Gemara doesn't read this Pesukim plain, I'm going to read the Pesukim plain for purposes of the debate. In other words, even with Shittoscha, you who don't believe in the Torah Shabbat, I can demonstrate to you out of the way the, the psukim are written in the Torah Shabbat, that there is a validity to the Torah Shabbat, which is interesting. And he he says in his introduction, and this, by the way, is the book that's in the in the uh, the original copy of seventeen fourteen, is in the Gnosim catalog. He says over there that I'm making this up. There are debates. Now he lived in seventeen fourteen. In the Frum world today, there are those who hold that the original Kuzri of Yehuda Levi is Mamash a historical book. Now, they're wrong, but that's what they hold. You get what I'm saying? In other words, when you read the Sefer Kuzri, I think I did this once in podcast long ago. <laughs> I can't remember this anymore. Uh, we have over 500 of these. When Yehuda Levi wrote his dialogue about how the, the Khazar king 
became a Jew, a from Jew, is that a real story that he met a rabbi and he had this conversation back and forth? Or no, is it Yudha Levi dreamed the whole thing up? He knew that there was a king of the Khazars, which is true. He knew that the guy converted to Judaism after discussions with a rabbi, which is true. And he, Yudha Levi, the author, made up the discussions. Now that, of course, is what really happened. But there have always been those who disagree and say, no, it really was the conversation that the, that the king had with the rabbi. Our hero, who writes this book in Hebrew, and may I say it's a wonderful Hebrew. It's a pleasure to read. And he says, I'm writing in the simple Hebrew that anybody can read. It's a machaya to read. He says, in his introduction, Since there is machlokis among Jews concerning the Khazar king, some say this, some say that. There are those who say that Yehuda Levi made the whole story up from top to bottom. There never even was a king of the Khazars. The whole thing is a novel, which of course is not the case. There certainly was a king of the Khazars, I mean, historically. And there was an empire of the Khazars, and the guy did convert to Judaism. But in the time of David Nieto, there are people who said, there are people who held that the whole thing is a, a fantasy, which is permissible in, in writing novels. Right? And others say, no, the account in, in the Kuzari is historically accurate. The truth is in between, as I said before. So our hero says, So in order not to make any controversy or accuse me of making things up, I want to say up front that this is a contrived work. I'm writing a work of fiction. I'm going to describe a conversation between the king of the Kuzri on the one hand and a rabbi on the other hand. I'm making it up. I'm making it all up, which I'm allowed to do. It's, it's a novel. Right? i never seen a Kaza or anything like that. It's all made up. I'm living in London. I'm just going to follow the literary style of Yehuda Levi. Okay? Uh, but I'm making this up. So this is a work I'm composing. And I use it, and he says, I like the dialogue form. And I'm following his literary style, Derech Sheilu Tshuva. Even though I'm writing the whole thing myself. Because the dialogue style is very good to prevent the argu- to advance the arguments on both sides. So here you have his famous book, or it's not so famous, but of all of his books, this is the one that got famous to any degree. And it's called the Kuzri Hasheni, or Mate Don. Uh... He says he has five debates, five vikuchim. But vikuch rishon ani mochiach min amikra shosi l'sroal torah shabal peh bimei anavim mechabri amikra. I'm going to try to prove from the pesukim themselves. No, it's reading it as a karite. That straight from the pesukim, can I prove that there was a torah shabal peh bimei anavim mechabri amikra? He even says from the time of Avramavino, but certainly in the time of the Tanakh. You can prove from the Pesukim of the Tanakh. And he does it very ingeniously. In my opinion, this is the most interesting part of the whole book. And if you're ever interested in this subject, and it's been published 
by the Moser of Cook and republished them in Moser of Cook and I got a couple years ago. This is the part that you find the most interesting today. In the second debate, uh, I'm going to dis- I'm going to prove that the Chazal didn't make it up, but rather all the drabonas come out of the pesukim themselves. That is the second most interesting part. These are the two parts you want to read. The third debate has to do with the famous uh, policy, and he may be the first guy that did it. He's certainly not the only one, which is goes like this. A person who looking superficially, so I guess, you know, look at the whole Talmud. These rabbis are boobs. They can't get their act together. They're arguing with everything right and left. It's the most contentious, argumentative group people you ever saw. They can't even agree on a base of Shanol de Bianto, tying the, the, shoe, the shoestrings. They're crazy. Wrong. Actually, they're only arguing on little details. They all agree on the m- main part. In other words, the multitude of disagreements or on details of big clawing that everybody agrees with. And as a matter of fact, there's a huge uh, consensus among the rabbis on the bulk of the Torah Shabbat Peh. That's a classic argument that's been advanced many times in many places. And he does a nice job of presenting it. And he lived before a lot of these other guys. In the fourth debate, he's going to prove, this is a little bit like the Rambam, that the Chazal weren't stupid, they knew science. Now here it's a little bit forced, and this is less interesting, unless you, and I'm, I'm, what I'm about to say I'm serious about, unless you're interested in the history of science, because he's going to make the argument over there that a lot of cases in the Gemara actually conform to modern science. He means the modern science of 1690, of 1700. You understand? A lot of the ideas he advances is the most modern science, and remember, he was educated Lafid, the modern science of his time, we don't hold that way today. He said a lot of cases in the Gemara can see that the Chazal were into that, and therefore they weren't uh, ignoramuses. Uh, I don't think that's such a strong piece. Right? The fifth part is all about the calendar and about uh, trigonometry, and that I couldn't even read. It's too boring for me. Okay, He loves to do all this math stuff. If you're it was with charts and things like that, if you're a math person, then, you know, you'll love it. Okay? Is that comparisons between the Christian calendar? Jewish calendar, he goes wild on this stuff. It's really not part of the book, but I think he added it in the book because he loved the subject. Uh, like I said before, I'm the wrong person for this. We have some rabbis in Baltimore that are very into astronomy and calendar issues. Uh, my friend Rabbi Heber is into that. All the rest, he would love this part. Me, not. But the first two parts have been translated in English in the 1800s and others. And all I can tell you is, it's a very, very interesting book, the first two debates. And he, of course, to set it up, he has to create immediately an artificial situation. There was a rabbi from Venice, I mean, he's from Venice, you know, uh, who was on a ship. He was heading east. There was a storm. And the ship gets storm-tossed and shipwrecked, and the guy ends up in a faraway land, the king of the Khazars. And he was brought to the king of the Khazars, and the king of the Khazars said, I guess, Oh, you're another rabbi, great. The other guy, the other rabbi I talked to, was all about the Torah Shabbat You, I want to ask questions about the Torah Shabbat 
because I know I believe in the Torah Shabbat, but I have a lot of, of karaim here in my kingdom, and I want to be able to slug them up. And then, so that's a highly artificial, you know, way of introducing subject, but who cares? You know, because then they get right into the uh, arguments, uh, back and forth, and you have the Kuzri and the Chavar and the Kuzri and the Chavar, just like Yudah Levi does. As I said before, in my personal opinion, the first part is the most interesting, and the second part also, because there he deals with the uh, Chazals. Now, but I'm going to tell you something. You have to know, I mean, when it gets to Gemaras and about the Trefos and this and that and the other, I mean, he was a Talmud Chacham, and you have to know a little bit of Gemara to understand this, so I'm not exactly sure who his audience was, because I don't think most of the guys in his community knew this stuff so well, but I could be wrong. And I want to say, this is one of two Hebrew books he wrote, and he, he also translated into Spanish at the same time. So, in 17, and by the way, in order to publish the book, there was no printing press in England. Um, <clears throat> there was no printing press in England. And he was an artist, among other things. You know, in those days, you learn, he, he uh, in, in college, he learned art. So he was a talented drawer and painter and all the rest of it. It's, it's really fun if you get the original copy that they have as Stefanski, but I think even in the reprints, yeah, I have in the reprint also, on the front page, he has a picture uh, at the top of uh, Rabbeinu HaKadosh. In other words, the hero in this book is not Moshe Rabbeinu, because that's the Torah Shavik Sab. The hero in this book is Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Nosi. Isn't that interesting? And he's got a painting of him and all that. He dreamt, dreamt up in his imagination. And uh, it's just very interesting. And uh, he contracted with a guy, and he made Hebrew letters, you know what I mean, for the printing press. You get what I'm saying, right? He he created the Hebrew letters because he was, he was calligraphic, artistic. Uh, and that was the first printing in England, any Jewish book. He wrote some Jewish stuff earlier. You know, when he first came to England in 1701, 1702, he was afraid of the Goyim. And when he wrote a book criticizing the Goyim calendar in, in, in Spanish or Latin, he didn't say he's published in London, he says he's published in Europe. He didn't realize England is more tolerant. They don't give a darn. <laughs> but he learned over time. This book was published in London. Maybe the first Hebrew book? I don't know. Uh, if you're interested in the history of, uh, of, of printing. And so he created this Hebrew press for this guy did for him. Uh, so he published it in Hebrew. He published it in three editions. In Hebrew, then he published it in Spanish, and then one book, Hebrew plus Spanish. What they have in the catalog is the Hebrew plus Spanish. I'm looking at the catalog here on page 166. Mate Don, Hebrew with Spanish translation. So it's really rare, because this is what you're not going to find today. Now, you don't read Spanish, unless the person listening to this, if you're in Mexico or someplace like that, you might find it very charming. I'm serious, I don't mean to be funny, to read something from a highly educated Spanish-Portuguese rabbi in 1714 in the old Spanish of that time which you'll understand instantly. Now, I don't know how he's going to explain some of the hard Gemaras that he deals with over here. He, he has a lot of Yerodea issues and things like that. Uh, but that itself would be just interesting. How would a guy translate in 1714 Talmudic context, concepts? You know, uh Barov and, uh, I don't know, Matzchoy of Araya, all kind of little things. Psukas Agargeris and Akubas Aveshet. He's got all the trafers there and things like that. Uh, 
it's a, just a very interesting book. Now, was th th this book, I just want you to know, uh, was published out there. It actually, Matzachem Be'ene HaGadolim. It's funny, because here you have a guy that's not your typical yeshiva type guy at all, because he's Italian in the way I just described. But he was a very from guy. And you can tell from every page you read of it, he's a very from guy, trying his best, using his secular knowledge, which was extensive for that time, to try to defend, defend from Yiddishkeit. It's, it's, it's charming in that way. And it's very interesting, because I can't say that this book took off and became the top of the charts. But it is true that, um, you won't believe this, you know who was a fan of this safer? The Kilis Yankov, the stipler. He's in one of his farm, I think, the Chayolam, he says, oh, if you have any Muna questions about Toshim, I'll read the Mate John. Uh, the Shagas Ari was a fan of this book, which is mind-boggling. And they say that he had it reprinted or something like that when he was a mess. I don't, I don't know if that's true, but, you know, Gedoli Yisrael liked the book. And this is the only book he wrote that had that kind of resonance, because it's in Hebrew. I'm not going to read anything that he wrote in Spanish. You know, and uh, in England in the 1800s, they printed some of this in English. I think it loses its time. Myself, me, myself, it loses its time if it's in English. But somebody today who was a very competent translator who could put it into modern words might find it. Uh, I could hear a, a guy publishing this, you know, with a Feldheim or something like that. I could, I could, I could totally hear that. The Mate Don. Maybe somebody has. I'm not aware of that at all. Me, myself, and I. This book was published hundreds of years ago and a few times in the 1800s. In Eastern Europe, by the way. And um, then it was published by the Moser Rav Cook in 1958, which is very interesting because that's how I found When I was a kid, I used to hang around the Hebrew College Library, like I told you, so I used to roam through the stacks because nobody else was there. I took out at that time the Mate Don. Because it said Kuzri Shani. I said, what the heck is Kuzri Shani? You know, I don't know what that is. And it was a little strange. I have to tell you, I'm, I'm going back 30 years at least. More, more. It was like strange to me. Today, I opened this up in a different mood. And it was very charming to read. Very Moshech. Uh, what happened is that 1950 was the 10th year anniversary of Israel. Ben-Gurion made a big splash. And... They were looking for something to mark the 10th anniversary of the State of Israel. The Ben-Gurion, who was a Karaite, not not in the sect sense, but like in sect, I'm talking about Ben-Gurion was only to the Torah Shavik <coughs> as Jewish literature. The Torah Shavik had no time for it. And his close friend was Rabbi Maimon, the head of the Mizrahi, who, who founded the Musar of Cook. And um, they were always arguing, they were friends, but they were always arguing over Ashkafa, naturally. Because my mother from guy, and big Zionist, very big Zionist, and Ben Gurion started what they call the Chidona Tanakh, which is around today, Bible contest. Nothing wrong with that. That was the uh, idea of Chaim Herzog's wife, and there's nothing wrong with a Bible contest. That's good. You should know Torah Shikhsav too, and it's still around and popular today. Uh, what shall I say? They had the Bible contest. But it's all about the Tanakh. There's nothing about... They didn't have a Mishnah contest. And, you know, no, Ben-Gurion's not interested in Tershavah Peh. Okay? Uh, the Rabbi Maimon was really ticked off about this. 
And so he did two things. One is he started this Kinos Artsy Latoshaval Pair, what I call the yellow covered pamphlets, where Kinos Artsy Latoshaval Pair, which has always been very interesting. You know, they all get all these scholars and rabbis and things around some theme from Toshaval Pair, which started that year. And he published this Mate Ton, <laughs> you know, Kenega Ben Gurion, to, he republished it with a big introduction and a piece by Cecil Roth um, to defend the uh, validity of the, of the Torah Shebel Peh. Notice that's an anti-Bengorian measure uh, in a cute way. right? Not in a vicious way, but in a cute way. A uh, number of years ago, we had this conference in um, Hopkins, by Kabbalah, Professor Garb ran it. A very good conference. And there was this guy there, I can't remember his name. I think he had a yarmulke, I can't remember anymore. And he expressed an interest. I was sitting next to him. We were talking and all that. Young guy. And he expressed an interest in getting the mate done. I said, oh, we could probably get I went to the bookstore, Shopsies. And they had it. Because last years, the the most of the just like republished a lot of their old stuff. They republished a lot of their old stuff. And um, this is one of them. This is in 2009. Okay, and uh, as a matter of fact, it's even better because the old book covers and with the original Mosrael Cook were junky. You know, if you remember those, you know, the old Israel. Uh, so I bought one for him. I bought one for myself also. I gave him a present. You know, how much did it cost a lot of money? I gave him a present. Make the guy feel good. I bought one for myself at the same time. I haven't opened it up much except once or twice. Now I was thinking about this past week or two. Um, for another reason, so I started reading through it again. I found it very charming. I have to say, it's very, it's very interesting. The Hebrew is wonderful. And, uh, and the first part is very thought-provoking. Now, you're not going to convince an atheist, you know, whatever, from this book. Uh, and I'm not saying that this works exactly nowadays as strong proofs. If if you're of a particular bent of mind, they're nice proofs. You know what I'm saying? And the author is sufficiently intellectually honest to say all through the book. He says, it's not proof, but it's a very stark riot. You know, it's not conclusive proof, but it certainly sounds that way. And you have to admire the person for, you know, giving it the, the best shot. I think you would find it very interesting, Safer. Uh, if you can read Spanish and you get the original Spanish one, might find it even more interesting. I think that this is really a good candidate now I'm talking for somebody to translate. It would it might translate well. It might translate well. Uh it's called Mate Don Kozre Shani. Now, I'll just do one more thing. He wrote one more book in Hebrew, and that was against Shabtai Sviism. Now, not exactly. It's Sabatianism, remember. We're talking about 1715. And um, Sao was dead for a long time. They had all these Sabatian kooks running around. And one of the famous fakers was Nechem Mechayun, a name from the past. And I'm sure I talked about this. If you want to coordinate with what I'm saying, listen to what I did once about the Chacham <coughs> Because Nechem Mechayun was a Sabatian, but he was a bull artist. And he pulled the wool over a lot, the eyes of a lot of rabbis. And he used to publish farm. 
And in the middle here and there was Kfira. You know, the whole book wasn't Kfira, but it was like a little here, a little here, a little here, a little there. That's a good way of insinuating in there. And usually it depends on the fact that the rabbi who gave the Askama didn't read the whole book through thoroughly. Right? And, you know, I remember he says, or somewhere over there in the first being embracious, you know, the he or is, is, is sin. <laughs> Get it? It's a mitzvah to do a sin in certain cases. All this Mishigat. So, he came to Amsterdam, where the Chacham Tzvi was. And by the way, Shlomo Island was the rabbi that inspired him. And he gave him a haskama, because he himself was Matzah Minas Mino. He was no good himself. The Chacham Tzvi burned the book. Nechem Chayun was clever enough to turn this into an ethnic war. He said to the Spanish-Portuguese Jews, the Mahamad, see, you guys like my book, but he doesn't. That's because he's Ashkenazi, and he has contempt for you, Svartim. There was actually some truth to that. And by the time it's over, the richy riches of the Svartim got the Chachamsvi fired and kicked out of Holland. And the, the, the cops came. I think they kicked him out of his house on Shabbos, I remember. The cops came. There's tremendous visionis. And... The Chacham Tzvi had to run away to London himself with Moshe Chagiz. These were the two Joe McCarthy's. These were the two anti-Sabatians that time. They ran away to London because our hero said like this, oh, you're getting screwed up by the Shabtai Tzvi. Come, I'll help you. They came to London. He put them up room and board. He took care of them. And he wrote a book, and again, in Spanish and in Hebrew, called Eshtaz. Connected this guy, Nechem Mechayun. Now, I haven't read it because it's still in the old chicken scratch print and I find that a turn off. And these Sabatian, counter-Sabatian things, it's, it's a matter of, of, of fighting back and forth with sources. You know, you got to be really into this. I'm waiting till they, I'm serious, I'm waiting till they should reprint it in a nice way. Uh, it's not at the top of my list. <laughs> but it's all, it's again, in a dialogue form. And it's all against the, uh, the ideas of Nechem Mechayun and, and, and the Sabatians. And he goes back and forth. Now, I know a friend of mine who did read it, Noah Shaver, he knows all the Kabbalah stuff. And I said, send me a, 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 what you would say would be, you know, a, a one paragraph uptouch of the Eshtas. Because this is a very interesting book. It's just, I just don't feel like plowing through it. And I'm going to send you what Noah Shaver sent me because I think it's very pithy. And he says as follows, quote, Eshtaz is an attack on the Chem Mechayun, and the author spent his time learning the Sefer and attempting to answer him up by quoting not only the Chacham Svi and the Shem Ramunim, but also classic Kabbalah and philosophy form like the Marechas Elus, Ibn Gabai, Jikatila, Shem Tov, Yashar Mekandia, we did last week, Herera, the Ramam Ipano, and the Shlo. Also the Ramam, the Kuzri, Josephus, and the Gemaras and the Zohars. He didn't get into a Zohar-based war, since he said the Zohar can be interpreted in many ways, but he also knew that the other guy, Nechemah was an expert in weaving Zohar for his own purposes. Ultimately, Nieto's attacks in this book, which is called Eshtas, are really against a thoroughly developed view of uh, Cardozo, that's Abraham Miguel Cardozo, I won't go into him now, but he's a real nut, whom Chayun is mainly relying on. Nieto never mentions Cardozo, he certainly knew Sabatians and past Sabatians like Shlomo Ailon, he simply says there's no difference between the Pashtunim and the Mekubalim. 
and it also never left Klal Yisrael, the proper identity of, of God to whom to daven, right? Uh, this is not true. The issues of faith, prayer, and Ashkafa are a key element behind Sabatin Kabbalah, and in Abishitz, and in the Shemolim, and Avayam, and Chasidus Chabat. In the second half of this book, he has an imagined dialogue with an Indian. See, see the style, the dialogue? Who never learned Torah or philosophy. He tries to explain to him issues of faith in God through logical means. Okay? Overall, his quick and constant dismissal of Nechemah is just being an Apikurus, who lied and misinterpreted, in some cases was true, but the Sugi of Ainsof, Elokus, Spheris, and Achtus are very deep and difficult issues. And I, I'm sure our hero wasn't a super Makubal. You see, these are not simple things that everyone knows, he says. The arguments of Chayun are mainly Cardoza's arguments in his many countries in which he wrote for years, bringing proofs from Chazal, Zohar, and philosophy. Even the three knots of faith and Aimsov is not a simple issue. So Cardoza was wrong, but the need to deeply clarify Kabbal was ultimately worked out through the Hasidim, especially Chabad. And, but the Chabad rabbis liked the Kuzri Shani, like I said before. So um, that's by somebody who actually read the book. So you get a little bit of the ideas over here. Um, I've gone very long on this, but I just wanted to make a point. Now, what happened to him? He remained in London until he died. In his old age, he got sick. No surprise over there. The community doubled his salary. Said he liked him when he died. He gave his wife a nice pension. Uh, he, as I said before, he gave his best shot. As you can see, everything I'm talking about. He gave his best shot to trying to keep the personal Kesher with all of his Balabatim. Um, he really was noble in that regard. He used every trick that he had. How many tricks did he have? He had he used every trick that he had. Writing books, translations, personal uh, you know conversations, sermons, teaching yeshiva, trying to spread chinuch. I mean, he gave it his best shot. But as I said before, if there's not a strong yeshiva there, and he wasn't able to make it a strong yeshiva, as Gatenish. Because when he died, you know, it kind of fell apart. The shul had his son take over. The son, after a number of years, he quit. Because it's just a shvach, a business. You know what I'm saying? England, Yiddishkeit in England remained orthodox. Uh, but, you know, in the official capacity, you couldn't get people really worked up with passion uh, about these issues. I'm talking about the Spanish-Portuguese community over here. I'm not discussing Nashkenazim. That's a separate topic, which I'm not going to get into. Uh and you see, as I said before, it's just very interesting to me, uh, the, the, the uh, what's the right word, the potential as well as the limitations of the rabbinical position. It's a very interesting. And uh, without strong yeshivas and things that go along with it, with all the pluses and minuses that go along with yeshivas, no question about it. But without that, um, without those items, it's not going to go so far. You see? It has a shelf life. Uh so there's so you know with, with if I want to dumb this down, I want to dumb it down. You know there's England before Gateshead and England after Gateshead. I've said oversimplification, but you know what I'm saying when I say that. And um, you can't get a better example, in my opinion, than the career of Chacham David Nieto, because he had all that it takes, right? He had all it takes. You want to know? He was working on a. Um, this is so uh, typical. He was working, and he, did, he finished part of it, but he didn't finish the whole thing. Not an encyclopedia Talmud did, not that. That's the other guy, Lampronti, did that. But uh, a concordance. In other words, by Aleph Bayes, like we would say today, a uh, an index of the whole shas. Okay? 
which would have been very useful at that time. Now, today, you got the internet, uh, right? At your fingertips, if you know how to do it, you can find anything you want in the Gemara. In Rishon and Machronim, that didn't exist. And so, it's very Italian from type of thing to use modern technology of the year 1710 to try to write a concordance of the whole Shas. Menashe ben Israel did it for the Medish Rabbah. Um, you know, that's who he was. It's a shame that there weren't a couple other Talmudic Chacham that showed up in England at that time as well. But that's the way things turned out. So I conclude, as it went too long today, but I conclude by saying, if anything I said is of interest to you, if if you're especially, if you can read Spanish, you will find this item in the uh, in the Gnosim catalog of interest. Um, so let me charge. It's a thousand bucks. Oh, not too bad. It's not for me, but, you know, it's not 100K. Um, and uh, you find something for one of, the, one of the very interesting people in Jewish history. Anyway, without any further ado, I'll bid you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com. Dot rabbi david